and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Oh, I'm so excited today. Because? Because we have a special guest on our podcast. Oh, that's what that was. Yes. And actually, um, unlike with Andrew, who had to Skype in. Yes. Bless him. Because he's in Minnesota. Yes. And um, as far as I know, there's no like... uh, transportation outside of the state of Minnesota to oh, other you states. Just only, you just only in Minnesota singular, forever. Yes, exactly. From lake to lake. That's it. Just all thousand of those lakes. Um, we do have an in-house guest today, uh, Beth Lathrop. Uh, Lathrop. Lathrop? Yeah. How did you already Lathrop? mess it up? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm so sorry. I don't think, honestly, I don't think I've ever heard your last name out loud. A lot of people don't say it because they're not sure how to say it. <laughs> they just go and wait for you to finish. Beth. And then, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's okay. That's all right, Beth. So tell us um, what your expertise is and what you do. Um, I am the director of libraries at the Strong Museum of Play. Well, that's where I know her from. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I don't know if that's necessarily what I would call my expertise. <laughs> Um, I've been a librarian for a long time, so I guess I'm kind of an expert in all sorts of ways to find information. Exactly. It's very appropriate that she's here with misinformation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say she is an honorary miss information <laughs> just she's because She's also of, our first lady guest. Yeah, she is our first lady guest, which We've is... We've had so many offers of, like... Of guys that have topics they want to talk about. Oh, absolutely. Which is great. We appreciate it. But it's really funny that we made it this long without having a lady offer such a thing. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to say, if you're a lady and you have an expertise in something, hit us up. Yeah. Hit us up. We want you on the show. Because Beth is the first, and we don't want her to be the last. Of course. That's exactly. Right. So I think I kind of roped Beth into this because she told us that she was working, helping her son on a project for school, and now she's an expert in this topic. Yes. And I said, you should really come on the podcast. <laughs> yes. And she agreed. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. Yeah, so my um, fifth grader had to do a research project, and he picked, for some reason, Chicago. Okay. And so I was helping him. I was reading him some books, um, and he was taking notes. We were having teamwork, mm. making the dream work for, to get his assignment done. <laughs> and so I read an entire children's book on a topic and then proclaimed myself an expert. You know what? Um, there are a lot of people who have done less and proclaimed themselves an expert <laughs> yeah. on a topic. So I'm going to say, yes, you are an expert on that now. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, yeah, I feel like I am. <laughs> so yeah, Beth is here to talk about one kind of fire, but we figured we would kind of incorporate a couple of major ones throughout history into this episode, kind of turn it into like a brief history of firefighting, as well as some of the major fire events that have taken place in history. So mm-hmm. that's what that's what the three of us are doing this week. Yeah. Is this fire in the hole. <laughs> fire. All right. (laughs) That's good. A very brief history of firefighting. Um, There's evidence of firefighting machinery in use in ancient Egypt, including a water pump that was invented by Ctibius of Alexandria in the third century BC. So this guy actually sounds pretty cool. He was a barber and inventor, the first head of the Museum of Alexandria. And he produced the most accurate clock ever constructed called the Clepsydra or the water thief, which was a water clock. That was in, that was in use for like millennia. Um, 
I want to, from here on out, I'm going to tell people to be like, you know, oh, someone says, oh, excuse me, do you have the time? I'll be like, well, you got to check that water thief. <laughs> it's right there. My clepsydra. <laughs> yeah. Over here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, organized firefighting began in ancient Rome under the rule of Augustus. Okay. So there's a Roman general. Um, he's also a politician named Marcus Licinius Crassus. Um, he's also referred to as the richest man in Rome. Wow. And he lived between about 115 BC and 53 BC. And boy, was this guy a piece of work. <laughs> Please jump in if you have anything to say about I him. I read about him. He's oh. going to be one of my fun facts. <laughs> oh, okay. Good, so good. Um, he created the first ever Roman fire brigade. You're like, that sounds nice of this rich guy to to create a fire brigade, right? Uh, but it is a little different than what we think of as firefighters today. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rome had no fire department then. Mm. Um, and Crassus organized a brigade of about 500 men. Um, and they would rush to burning buildings at the first cry of alarm. Great. Great. Yeah, he's got Upon a good Upon arriving so far. at the scene, the firefighters did nothing while Crassus offered to buy the burning building from the distressed <laughs> no. property owner at a cheap price. Yeah. No. Uh-huh. That... <laughs> So you got yourself a big fire here. Um, I'd be happy to take that off your hands. <laughs> yes. So basically, if the if the owner refused to sell the property, the men would just let the structure burn to the ground. Oh. Yeah. And he would keep offering him like a lower and lower price, yes. right? Like the well, next time. Well, you lost yeah. your second floor. <laughs> now the price is three hundred. Really, be a shame if your barn went away. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. that's very awful, but also shrewd. So then what he would do is after he bought these properties, he would then rebuild them and then lease them back to the original owners. <laughs> so not only did he like, <laughs> he now had this property as an investment. He got money from them. Wow. <laughs> and people just let him yeah. do this. No one murdered him in the process. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> it doesn't say how he died. Rome, man. Rome. Wow. Rome. Uh, well, speaking of Rome, Emperor Nero took the basic idea from Crassus, but built on it to form the, Vigil Urbani, the watchman of the city, um, also known as just the Vigil, in 60 AD to combat fires using bucket brigades and pumps, as well as poles and hooks to tear down buildings in advance of the flames. Mm. So the Vigil um, patrolled the streets of Rome to watch for fires, and they served as a police force also. Um, Their later brigades consisted of hundreds of men all ready for action. And when there was a fire, the men would line up to the nearest water source and pass buckets hand in hand uh, to the fire. Uh, But Rome suffered a number of serious fires, uh, most notably the fire in July 64 AD, which eventually destroyed two thirds of Rome. So didn't didn't quite work out. Didn't do the best that they could. Mm, That's a shame. (laughs) uh, Europe didn't really do a great job of organizing their firefighting for a few centuries. Um, The city of Paris had like night watches and stuff Mm -hmm. for people to look out for not only crimes, but also fires. Um, And so that was supposed to, you know, add a layer of prevention, but you know, they weren't very good at like then battling the fires yeah. once they had them. But then we get the big first big fire that we will be talking about. Yes. And uh, in brief, in brief, <laughs> in very brief, because um, Lauren didn't pay any attention. Full disclosure. This is 100 percent on me. Uh, I thought I was doing an entire episode on the Great Fire of London which I will in fact do because yes. I wrote six pages on it. Oh but yeah. I'm going to give you a quick like um, uh, uh, cliff notes version of the great fire of London. Okay. So I already did an episode on um, the great plague the of plague. London. Yes. Uh, which was terrible. And a lot of people died um, from the like, episode. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was 
It was brutal. It was. It was that's why we haven't come back to that in a while. <laughs> it's true. Well, here we are. We're back in it because uh, only a few months later, from the the plague, when the plague finally died down, um, the Great Fire of London happened. So, the plague died down in um, like the summer of 1666, uh-huh. and uh, the fire broke out um, at Thomas Farriner's Bakery in Pudding Lane a little after midnight on Sunday, September second. So they get like maybe two or three months respite where they're like ah the lord has smiled on us the plague is gone and then uh then the fire happens (laughs) so the reason why the fire was so terrible um is well one um london was just like this incredibly busy and uh packed cesspool of people and buildings and a lot of industries that had a lot of fire and heat um and one of the problems with London at the time was that uh, a lot of the buildings had what was called jetties. Okay. So uh, because the population was growing at such an incredible rate, um, a lot of people would build onto their houses, but they would build upwards as opposed to from side to side mm-hmm. because there wasn't a lot of um, space. Like you wouldn't have a huge footprint for your home. Right. So they would build upwards. And in fact, it would build up and would actually start like the jetties of this house would actually meet in the middle of the street Ooh. because it would build upwards and then outwards. Okay. Um, so there were some in some streets, apparently you couldn't even see the sun because the jetties <gasps> were so close to each other from the houses across the street. There are some good examples of that in York England, yes. in the shambles area. That's still in existence. They say that people could like reach out their window and shake the hand of the guy that exactly lived across the street or something. It was and really of, cool. Yeah. And of course these projecting upper floors were all made of what was known as waddle and daub. Which is Waddle and Dog. Which is the most privatized. <laughs> Hello, I'm Waddle and I'm Dog. And we're here to solve your murder. So I think we should write this down. I know, yeah. really. It's copyright misinformation. <laughs> no one take this from us. So uh, Waddle and Dob is, um, it's, uh, you see it a lot in like Canterbury. It kind of looks like um, what the facade of a Tudor house looks mm-hmm. like. It's these, um, this frame of like thin pieces of wood and then what's known as, which is called waddle. Mm -hmm. And then daub is like this sticky, um, like adherent material usually made from like straw and mud Mud. and animal dung and all sorts of stuff. And it's usually, it was used most often because it was cheap one Mm -hmm. and two, it was really good at, um, insulation. But if you did not take care of it, actually waddle and daub is still used, um, nowadays Mm. in, uh, in Europe. Um, they obviously the daub is more of like industrial products as opposed to regular ass mud. Yeah. But if you weren't keeping up with your home and like re like finishing it with waddle and daub and all this stuff, um, it would get very dry and therefore it was a terrible fire hazard. <laughs> <laughs> so like 85% of the homes in the London area were made of waddle and daub and they were like flaking and all Just this stuff. Already to, already to Just to l- go light up. that candle. Mm-hmm. So, um, the fire occurred in this bakery in Pudding Lane, um, Thomas Farriner's house specifically. And uh, the fire spread quickly because there was a very high wind coming through from the east. And it just, the conflagration just roared through. And it lasted for, I think, three or four days. Uh, altogether, the material destruction had been computed at 13,500 houses, 87 parish churches, 44 company halls, the Royal Exchange, where... Ooh. 
like the, all of the money of the city of London was held in gold bars and all of the bankers were like desperately trying to get it out because it would melt in the high <gasps> heat because the That's heat right. was so intense. Um, also the custom house, St. Paul's cathedral burned to the ground, uh, the Bridewell palace and other city prisons, uh, the general letter office and the three Western city gates, Ludgate, Newgate and Aldersgate. Um, the interesting thing about the general letter office is that, um, that's where all of the information dissemination from the city was happening. So you couldn't get newspapers out and you couldn't get letters out. So people didn't outside just in the immediate vicinity of the city of London didn't know what the hell was going on. And because no one knew what was going on, they thought it was a Catholic plot. (gasps) So they thought it was actually terrorism as opposed to just like Ah, a natural disaster, Um, which I will tell more in my episode about (laughs) the great fire of London, which was an impromptu decision on our part. Um, Altogether, (laughs) altogether, the monetary value of the loss um, first estimated at 100 million pounds in the currency at the time was later reduced to an uncertain 10 million pounds, which is equivalent to 1.66 billion pounds (gasps) in 2018. So um, it really disseminated the city of London and, uh, that really just closed off a really just shitty period. <laughs> yeah. Sounds delightful. Yeah. In London's history. Oof. So yeah, that's what Stay I got. Tuned. Stay, Stay tuned. Stay tuned guys. Everybody. Yeah. I got You're lots really more uplifting deets. episode coming, <laughs> coming at you ahead. So basically as I'm sure you will again talk about oh, sure, uh, yeah. prior to this fire, London had no organized fire protection system, mm-hmm. but afterward insurance companies formed private fire brigades to protect their clients' properties. Oh, that's interesting. So insurance brigades would only fight fires at buildings that the company insured. Oh no. And they were identified by fire insurance marks. So the key breakthrough in firefighting arrived in the 17th century with the first fire engines. So uh, German inventor Hans Hausch improved the manual water pump by creating the first suction and force pump and adding some flexible hoses to the pump. And in 1672, Dutch artist and inventor Jan van der Heiden, remember his name. Oh, yeah, I know him. He developed the fire hose, oh, which then was constructed of flexible leather and it was coupled about every 50 feet with brass fittings. Uh, van der Heiden also modified the manual fire engine and he wrote and illustrated the first firefighting manual uh, called the Brandsputen book. Mm, yes. yes, the classic. You're, the classic. I'm very familiar. I'm sure it's in our library I've, somewhere. I've, we've got like six copies of it. <laughs> <laughs> so the fire engine was further developed by another Dutch inventor named John Lofting, um, who had worked with Jan van der Heiden in Amsterdam. So Lofting moved to London around 1688 and he became an English citizen and he patented. Ready? Oh. The sucking worm engine. No. Mm, no. <laughs> so the sucking worm engine. Oh, please don't. Why are we calling it that now? <laughs> it's actually, I don't know what it is that you're really hitting the suck part of that, but it's it's actually, I'm the having sucking a... sucking worm engine. I'm having a real visceral reaction to that. In 1690. <laughs> so there was a glowing description of the firefighting ability of his device. The sucking worm engine. <laughs> In the London Gazette in 1691, <laughs> after the issue of the patent. And the British Museum has a print that shows Lofting's fire engine at work in London, with the engine being pumped by a team of men. And also in the print, uh, fire plaques of early insurance companies are shown, indicating that Lofting collaborated with them in firefighting. Uh-huh. So basically, it was like, okay, my bakery, um, I'm insured by Waddle and Waddle. Waddle and 
Waddle and Dob. Waddle, Waddle and Dob. Waddle Dob Insurance Agency. Yeah. And well, I got you know, my... they, they retired from the crime fighting and they <laughs> yeah. opened their own they insurance company. They wanted to, to, to diversify. Exactly. Yeah. So you have their little mark on your building. So yes. if your bakery catches on fire, Waddle and Dob will send their fire brigade down and they'll say, oh, yeah, that's, Here we our, go. that's ours. And they yeah. will put your fire out. But with the sucking, they would only the, bring the, the sucking, sucking worm. worm engine. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to be insured in order to get uh, the sucking worm yeah. to come to your house. Yes. Mm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first like official fire brigades in the modern sense were created in France in the early 18th century. So in 1699, a man named Francois du Maurier du Perrier mm. received an audience with King Louis the Fourteenth. Um, so he was greatly interested in van der Heiden's firefighting inventions, and he successfully demonstrated the new pumps and managed to convince the king to grant him the monopoly of making and selling fire-preventing portable pumps throughout the kingdom of France. Mm. So Perrier offered 12 pumps to the city of Paris, um, and the first Paris fire brigade was known as the Compagnie des Gardes Pompes, literally the <laughs> Company of Pump Guards, <laughs> created in 1716. So... I'm so glad I'm talking about this. Yeah, me too. Also, <laughs> I love that while French is a beautiful language that I cannot pronounce, uh, I'm so glad that pump is <laughs> the same word, just like with like some French flash on it. <laughs> Um, in 1733, the French government decided that the interventions of the fire brigades would be free of charge, uh, mm. mostly because people always waited until the last minute to call the fire brigades to avoid paying them a fee. Oh, yeah. And it was often already too late to stop the fires at that point. Sure. Um, and from 1750 on, the French fire brigades became paramilitary units and they received uniforms. Um, in 1756, the use of a protective helmet for firefighters was recommended by King Louis XV, but it took a while before the measure was actually enforced on the ground. So Napoleon Bonaparte, drawing from the century-old experience of the garde pompe, is generally <laughs> is generally attributed as creating the first professional firefighters, oh. known as the sapeurs-pompiers from the French army. Um, and the corps was created under the commandant of engineers in 1810 and was organized after a fire at the Austrian embassy in Paris had injured several dignitaries. So meanwhile... Over here in America. Yes. The city of Boston, Massachusetts established America's first publicly funded paid fire department in 1679. Okay. Great. First yeah. fire department in America is in Boston. That makes sense. Um, New Amsterdam Governor Peter Stuyvesant appointed men to act as fire wardens, and the city burghers later appointed eight prominent citizens to the rattle watch. Um, so these men volunteered to patrol the streets at nights carrying large wooden rattles. Okay. So if a fire was seen, the men would spin the rattles and then direct <laughs> the responding citizens to form bucket brigades. Great. A rattle, really? Not a, a bell? Yeah, or big, big wooden, like... Or a horn? Yeah, it doesn't, like... Um, I mean, it could be kind of a misnomer. It's a big thing with like a lot of beads or like yeah, a rattle like things a big involved baby in rattle. it. But it's big, big. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Weird. not like a baby rattle. <laughs> Just like a. <laughs> it took forever to put this fire out. <laughs> no one heard it. Um, in 1736, Benjamin Franklin established the Union Fire Company in Philadelphia, which was an unpaid volunteer company. And he also established the colony's first fire insurance company in Philly. Um, the second oldest volunteer fire company in continuous service in the U.S. is from Haddonville, New Jersey. And boy, are they proud of this. Oh, yeah. I mean, my dad was a firefighter for 35 years. And while he did not buy into the whole firefighter heroic thing, um, he knew a lot of people who did, and he was just like, Ugh. especially volleys, volleys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, firefighters are real proud of, I mean, anything that they do. Bless them. <laughs> <laughs> you say like it's a bad thing. No, it's not a bad yeah. thing, not at all. Yeah. 
1754, Halifax, Nova Scotia established the Halifax Regional Fire and Emergency, which is today Canada's oldest fire department. And that brings us to the 19th century Ooh. in America. Yeah. So what happened in the 19th century in America with fires? Oh, funny you should ask, <laughs> Julia. Um, I was helping my son with his project the other day and picked up a wonderful book called What Was the Great Chicago Fire? And right there in the title. Yeah, right there. <laughs> what is it? What, what was it? What is it? And who's the large-headed man on the cover? We, we will find out. So um, Chicago was incorporated in 1837, and um, they had only had about 4,000 residents. Mm. It's like Just a little dinky, dinky town. But um, by 1871, um, they had like 300,000 people living okay. there. Wow. So it really sort of, a city really boomed up because of its location. So mm -hmm. from Chicago, you can get uh, through the Great Lakes... And then hop on the Erie Canal mm -hmm. if you've got an old mule. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Name's Sal. Sal. Um, <laughs> so, and then get over to, so you can get to the Atlantic Ocean. But then there was another canal that the, my book did not tell me the name of <laughs> um, that would go from, would get you from Chicago to the Mississippi River. So then you could go all the way down oh, okay. to the, the Mississippi Gulf. River and to the Gulf of Mexico. So um, pretty much if you wanted to get any stuff anywhere, you would take it to Chicago because then you could. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they had, uh, like 21, uh, railroads went through there at this time. And so, and then they had all of the, um, what were they called? Were the stockyards. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. oh yeah. 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 Those, those <laughs> Chicago stockyards. stockyards Chicago. Yeah. So people would bring in their, you know, and then they would be. Yeah. Distributed. Yep. Distributed. And then they'd go <laughs> back great. out. Processed so, and distributed mm -hmm. <laughs> to consumers. Exactly. So about this time, so it was basically the fastest growing city in the country at the time. So, um, cause it was, it was a fast growing city and there were of course rich people there mm -hmm. and they wanted fancy stuff like the fancy cities back East, um, you know, fancy buildings and, um, you know, sort of the the old look of like wood and mm. and uh, copper and like sculpture. Yeah. But um, the only thing, so wood was really cheap to get mm -hmm. a hold of. So what they did was they would build houses and buildings all out of wood and then like paint the wood to look like stone or to look like uh, the copper. Okay. Oh, okay. So um, and even the streets. Uh, they weren't paved with actual bricks. They made them like they cut wooden blocks in the shape of bricks oh, to no. pave yeah. the street. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a lot of wood. Problem number everywhere. One. <laughs> um, problem number two: uh, Chicago was built like right on the shore of Lake Michigan, so it was essentially built on a swamp. So like every spring. Um, the mud would get so bad, like people would, you know, be walking on the street and like sink in. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and there was awful. a there's an in a, there's an, a, a joke that people would tell. Um, so there's a popular joke about a Chicago man who saw a traveler sunk into the mud up to his neck. Are you all right? The man asked. I'm fine. The traveler said. I'm riding on a good horse. <laughs> So wow, yeah, wow. you really got deep in there. Yeah, there so was... so quicksand and mud really was something to be scared about <laughs> in <guess> Chicago. So. <laughs> That's where that trope's That's from. That's where it comes from. Yeah. <laughs> so they people didn't like the mud, 
So but their solution was to build raised wooden sidewalks. Okay. So like held up on wooden poles. Like a boardwalk kind of. Yes. And then they would, then they had this system where they would jack up the buildings too. Uh-huh. So you've got wooden sidewalks <laughs> on, in, bil- in wooden buildings on wooden poles yeah. above a street paved with wooden Wood. fake bricks. Sure. I'm getting, I'm, I'm sensing <laughs> a theme. Yeah. Like a, there's a lot of foreshadowing happening yes. Yes. that I'm getting. I mean, it might be because. You know, I'm, a, I'm an intellectual and I can gather these things. Well, I have an analytical brain. Some yeah. of us aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm getting that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so in 1858 is when Chicago established their professional firefighting mm-hmm. system. And then in 1867, they built a fancy waterworks that would pull water from Lake Michigan and it could be pumped out all over the city. Um, they had a bunch of um, fire engines and they had a bunch of fancy new the steam um, pump engines. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And they also had an alarm system, um, so they have those uh, watchmen on the top of um, the tower and the central courthouse. And he would his job was to look at you know keep an eye out for fires. And they had so if you spotted one, he would use the he'd relay it to his assistant, and the assistant would send a telegraph to the nearest um, fire department, okay. and oh, then okay. they would send it. And there were also boxes around town where you could. Um, call in your own fire. Oh. So you could you would push the alarm and that would signal the state you know, the central tower and then, then they would um get they'd send All out right. there. This seems tappy, pretty tappy, tappy. Like, that's actually yeah, pretty sophisticated. Yeah. 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 So <clears throat> so now we get to October seventh, eighteen seventy one. Lauren doesn't like it already. <laughs> um so it's really hot mm. and of course it's really windy. Um, it hadn't rained a, in any significant amount since July. So they're Oof. going on like a six-month um, drought. And it's so dry that like little fires are starting every day. So they have, you know, like the patrolmen that would go around. They did not have a rattle. They had like a chemical fire extinguisher. Okay. So they'd just be walking around and, you know, put out <laughs> the fires as they see them because there's Nothing fires all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Oh, the other thing, um, next to all the wooden um, houses and wooden office buildings built with wood and propped up with wood, you also have, um, like, mixed in, um, you know, pre-zoning days. You've also got, like, factories made of wood Mm -hmm. and, you know, doing stuff with coal and paint and all kinds of flammable. Super flammable things. Yes. (laughs) With just children running the factories. Yeah, for some reason. Yeah, well... Um, so that night, this is October 7th, a fire starts on the west side and the west side had a nickname called the red flash because it caught fire so easily. Mm. So the firefighters are, you know, get there and they're struggling to put it out. So this other thing that people would do, um, so if there was a fire, people would like run into their house and take out all their furniture and put it out in the street to save their furniture. To save their furniture and to, like if they had to skedaddle, they would throw it in a wagon and take it out. Oh, but I guess oh. they thought that like if their house burned down, they still have their other stuff. Okay. Which, you know, I guess that sounds like a good idea until the embers from the other fire, oh, cuts, right. you know, hits the furniture. Uh, <laughs> and because oh, no. um, it's windy. Yeah. So it's the windy city, I exactly, hear. Exactly. That's what I hear. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll get to that part about the Windy City. Um, so this one, they, they put this one out, um, but this fire burned for about 16 hours, and it destroyed four city blocks and one railroad bridge. Oh but they, so the firefighters, they spent so much time putting this out, and so their equipment was damaged, and everybody was hurt. And so this one, um, this was the biggest fire that Chicago had ever seen. Wow. So everyone's like, we did it. We're awesome. Oof. Our system works. Yeah. Let's all go home and go to bed. Hmm. So, um, but some firefighters, I think, I, I forget which book I read it in, they were like out celebrating. They're like, we just won this fire. Let's get drinks on me. <laughs> so some of them did not go home to sleep, which is. Mm. Ah, that's no good. So now we're on October 8th. So it's the next day. It's hot and windy again. So there's a neighborhood that's mostly immigrants and a lot of Irish um, immigrants just south of where the previous day's fire was. And so this is where you all know the Catherine O'Leary. Oh, Mrs. O'Leary. Mrs. O'Leary. So there's a song about her um, that goes, One dark night when we were all in bed, old Mrs. O'Leary took the lantern to the shed, and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, There'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. (laughs) (laughs) The cow said this? Is this a first person narrative of the cow? This she, song? Di- no, I got it. It's not clear. Got to diagram the sentence, but <laughs> I think the cow. She was an English major too. Oh, okay, the yeah. cow kicked it over, and then the she is referring to Mrs. O'Leary. Okay, so, so she is like. So, so the reason why we we think that um, so it had a lot to do with at, at the time there was a lot of uh, not so warm and fuzzy feelings toward um, Irish or the people. Irish. Sure, yeah, yeah. So um, this uh, reporter writes this article after the fire that, you know, said that this lazy, dirty Irish woman, Catherine O'Leary, let the fire spread, and she had a lazy, dirty Irish cow who kicked <laughs> over the lantern, you know, so we had First this whole all, story. Yeah. How does she know the cat was Irish? I, know, I think it's, that was, that's just racist one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it was eventually like they had a big after, you know, they had a regroup, mm-hmm. what I would like to call like, okay, touch base again after this fire. <laughs> and they, it was proved that she was actually in bed. And oh. so the reporter actually had to uh, admit that he made it all up. Oh, okay. But yeah, yeah it prevails. Yeah. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. ah. Poor Mrs. O'Leary. I know. So, yeah, poor Mrs. O'Leary. So she did have, she had five cows and one calf, and they would, she would have to be up at five in the morning to milk the cows because that's how she made, her husband was a laborer, and she, you know, had a, a booming cow business out of her barn. <laughs> so um, they rented a half of their house to um, <clears throat> another, um, some unnamed guy whom I'm assuming he's also a lazy, dirty Irishman because <laughs> he was having a party that night to celebrate the arrival of one of his relatives from Ireland. Okay. So, oh, okay. <laughs> somebody named Patrick or yeah. Sean. Sean, yeah, for sure. Um, so now this is a name that I think we should remember more than uh, Catherine O'Leary because at the party was a guy named Pegleg Sullivan. <gasps> Not enough peg leg. I'm going to name my child that. Peg leg Sullivan. (laughs) So good. He did have a first name, but I didn't write it down. No, I I just called him Peg Leg Sullivan. So he was at the party, but he leaves around 8.30. Um, 
I'm assuming he did the classic Irish goodbye, like <laughs> pretend you're going someplace else and you sneak yeah. out the back. Yep. So, so he's heading home and he walks past the barn and he sees flames coming from the O'Leary's barn and he mm. yells out fire. And then he goes in to try to save the cows. Oh, so, but the fire is one like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Wait, so he gets in there. Yeah. And the fire is too much and his peg leg falls off. <gasps> no. Yes. You gotta, oh, you gotta screw that thing on. thing on, man. <laughs> so, this is but, Chicago. Uh, <laughs> your thing could get sucked into the mud at any time. Like that. <laughs> oh, so, so his peg leg. peg leg falls off, and the only way he escapes is he, um, like the other cows are freaking out, um, so they're not going anywhere. But he just grabs onto like the neck of the calf, and the calf runs him out of the oh, the barn. That was very smart. Yeah. Um, so some, you know, there's a theory that it was uh, the peg leg Sullivan really did. It was like snooping in Mrs. O'Leary's barn, taking off his peg leg. I don't know what, his, <laughs> what he was doing. Yeah, it goes. Um, but there's some other people think it was those, um, those Irish guys who were celebrating that they went, they were using the barn to like play cards and mm. smoke uh, cigarettes. Uh, that's interesting. Probably. But nobody actually knows. So... <laughs> so the fire's uh, spreading quickly, so, but it's heading north away from the O'Leary's place because that's the way the wind is taking it. So all the O'Leary's get out, and they you know, put some water on their house, and their house ever not, not, doesn't burn. It survives the <gasps> oh, fire. Oh, wow. Wow, that's surprising. But I think she lost her. And the, the calf actually like, ran across the street and like, hung out with the neighbors like, the whole time. <laughs> but I think her other five cows Aww. died. Oh, that's too bad. Um, Did they put all their furniture in the street? <laughs> she didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, she was fine. Um, so, oh yeah, so it's the wind is taking it north, and it's also the other thing that helps it spread because you also have your wooden sidewalks and your wooden streets, but also they have people have nice wooden fences, so that can oh, just carry everything, just like a wick. So, um, one of the neighbors, um, uh, William Lee, he runs to the closest fire alarm box at this drugstore called Gall's Drugstore. It's about three blocks away. So they kept the fire alarm boxes locked because they didn't want prank calls and mm, false sure. signals. So he asked the store owner, Bruno Gall, to unlock it. And Bruno's like, I just, I'm not going to. I just saw a fire truck go by, so I'm not going to unlock it. It basically gets your dirty Irish butt out of here. <laughs> And so William Lee's like, oh, I don't have time to deal with this fool. So he runs back home and starts to try to save his family. Aww. So later, Gall would claim that after William Lee left, um, he did send, send the alarm after he left. But then he also said that another guy came around like 10 minutes later and said the fire was even bigger. And he said, so he said he sent that signal too. Mm. But no alarms were recorded at the central station mm. uh, when they checked during the official inquiry later. But... What we do know is that right after William Lee headed back, Gall locked up his store and then he headed out to watch the fire because that's why people. That's what you did back then. There's no TV. Yeah. No Netflix. There's a fire. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So now we go to. So, yeah. So there's no one has called in this fire yet. So the guy who's on duty at the central courthouse um, walking around the tower, his name is Matthias Schaefer. And he's got some visitors, and he's showing them around his tower. Mm. And he's like, look at this cool job I have. And (laughs) 
the one of the people is like, hey, is that a fire over there? And he was like, that's just smoke from yesterday's fire. Like, it's still oh, no. smoldering, you idiot. I know how to do my job. <laughs> <laughs> so then he finishes showing them around, and then he comes back to take another look. And he's, this time he sees, like, flames leaping in, into the sky. So from his vantage point, this new fire was, like, directly behind the old fire. Oh. So when it was just smoke, he thought it was he really thought it was the other, um, the old fire. That cartoon double take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he finally sends, so the first alarm is sent at 9.30. Um, so it's been burning for like an hour at this point. So he sends an alarm. He has his telegraph assistant send the alarm, but he um, tells him to send it to what he thinks is the closest station, but it's really not the closest station. He sends it like a mile oh. away from the actual fire. So he watches for a little bit more, and then he realizes that he sent it to the wrong station. And so he asks his assistant, whose name is William J. Brown, to to resend the alarm to the correct station. Mm-hmm. And this guy um, <laughs> refuses to send it because he's like, that's just going to confuse them. They'll see it anyways. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Bureaucratic garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, um, two engines show up. Um, but the new, their new fancy steam engines are going to the fake fire a mile away. Um, so it's these two little engines that are um, trying to fight this fire, and the firefighters are um, trying to protect themselves from the heat. So they would, like, some of the buildings that already burned, they would grab the doors and, like, try to use them as a oh, shield. Okay. But it was so hot, the doors, like, burst into fire. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't work. <laughs> Um, so finally more help arrives, and then they send someone to Gall's drugstore again to send an alarm asking for more engines to come, like a send help. Um, so the guy sent the alarm, but he used the wrong code, so the central station thought it was just a saying, like, the fire's here, instead of, like, oh. the fire's really here, like, send more help. Oh, so another signal, it was the wrong signal that he sent. Man, it's <sighs> just a comedy of errors. <laughs> In this sophisticated system that they established in Chicago. Yeah, built on wood. In the windy in city. Windy city. <laughs> so, yeah, so all the equipment that was damaged from the day before, it starts to break down. Um, some of the hoses are catching fire. Um, so they're like, okay, we're not going to be able to stop this fire from burning. Like, it had, like, 15 more blocks to go to, like, the four block radius that was already burnt. And then after that's the river. So they're like, at least... You know, it'll it'll won't have anything to burn once it gets to these, you know, the parts that's already burned out, and then it's the river. You know, it's not gonna it's not gonna cross the river. Oh, <laughs> except for so probably every- those wooden bridges. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so on the other side of the river, this is you know, Gall and all his buddies are over on the other side of the river watching the fire and think this is really fun, but um, so it's windy. <laughs> so some embers and sparks go up to the top, the steeple of St. Paul's Church. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it blows across the river. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. And um, if so it spread the fire. And then on the other side of the river are, like, a bunch of lumber yards uh, that had wood and sawdust and a, a nice match factory. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> factory i just imagine just boxes and boxes of matches clear to the ceiling and just like tiny sticks of matches all in a row on a on a conveyor belt just waiting to be packaged on a wooden conveyor (laughs) on a wooden conveyor belt that's right oh my god that's hysterical and also terrible yes also terrible i should say 
So, ba- yeah, so everything catches fire. <laughs> and, you know, so now the fire's on the other side of the river. So on that side of the river, they're all freaking out. Um, so they start bringing their furniture out onto the street. Because <laughs> now Because it's that's time. what you do. Yeah. So, so there's cart drivers, and um, so they were, like, uh, charging, like, ten times their usual rate. Oh, like, sure, yeah. To Uber, all your stuff. Uber surge charging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then, so it was su- such chaos that sometimes someone would come along and be like, hey, I'll double what he just paid you. So the cart drivers would dump the other, other person's <gasps> stuff and load up with the new person's stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but there were some nice people because okay. some of the cart people, cart guys, uh, carted like entire families away and then went back to get more people out. And then like, so some people at the railroad station, they had to push by hand, like a bunch of freight cars, like out of the path because who knows what was in, I'm sure every, everything was made of wood. <laughs> the freight cars were probably made of wood and they were probably carrying Full wood. Of wood. <laughs> or gasoline. <laughs> gasoline. <laughs> yeah. So, so they pushed them out, but essentially it's becoming, this whole city is like a big, like backdraft style yeah. situation because you've got this like tunnel of fire going under your sidewalks and under your buildings. Oh my God. And, um, there was in my, the book that I only finished half of, there's a lot of eyewitness stuff and it was like, they, they were saying like the sound was just like, you <gasps> couldn't see and you oh, couldn't hear. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah, just yeah. like a thunder of fire. So people couldn't escape to the south because that's where the fire was. Um, so some the people started to head east toward the lake, um, but they ended up having to wade into Lake Michigan because the fire came all the way to oh, the wow. shore. And then the bridges across the Chicago River to the north and the west, they caught on fire. Because they're made of wood. And then so there's ships, tra- so they collapse, and there's ships <gasps> trapped in the river, and the... It, um, embers get blown onto them. The ships oh. are made of wood. And the ships are made of wood. <laughs> oh my God. But also, they had a nice, um, uh, it was not the cleanest river, so they had a mm-hmm. nice uh, surface of oil. Mm-hmm. So then the river itself caught on fire. Oh. <laughs> Much like Cleveland. Can you imagine, can you imagine you're like, oh, good, we're on the river, and then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> yep. the flames come yeah. up, you're like, this is hell. This yeah. is it. This oh is my, my literal gosh. worst nightmare the river is on fire. Yes. What? <laughs> so, so the only way to go is north. Um, at 2.30 in the morning, the fire is up there, too. So um, about 30,000 people ended up get, get, getting to Lincoln Park because there is not, I mean, there's some trees, but that's the only wood stuff. Like, there's no other buildings <laughs> to burn. You got, like, you know, it's a nice open park and oh, okay. there's selected trees. And were, they, so, were they very numb when they were there? Oh, Come on, Lincoln oh, Park. I, sh- oh, okay. I was yeah, trying yeah. really hard. No, it was very good. No, it was good. It was good. Okay. <laughs> we're keeping that in. No, we're keeping it in. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so then some they were some people were like camping out in the cemeteries too that were near Lincoln Park. Mm. Uh, they brought you know they had their furniture there too so because they had gotten away <laughs> they just with their made their bed up yeah <laughs> just all right this is where we live now uh, but some people were like I this is not good enough for me and they fled out to the prairie which was fine except the prairie had a drought too and it's all just grass Oof. oh no which I hear is flammable <laughs> <laughs> so here's a not so fun fact Ugh. and as um, Librarians and archivists and curators, this will um, really upset you. Uh Uh-oh. So the 
Chicago Historical Society no. had uh, the original Emancipation Proclamation. No! Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. So the librarian, he tries to save it, um, but the fire moved in so fast that he like had to jump out of a burn the burning building like out of a window. Oh my! And God. he could he could not save the Emancipation <gasps> Proclamation. I wow. had no idea that that was Me destroyed. Neither. Oh my God! That's terrible. Mm-hmm. That's why you digitize everything. <laughs> oh Jesus! <geez. laughs> All right, oh, she took off her cans. <laughs> She's walking away. <laughs> so. Um, can't get much worse, right? We just yeah. lost one of the most important documents and a poor librarian had to jump out of a window. Yeah. And we do not like to jump. Oh, no. no. You guys are not no. really We're great at not moving quickly. <laughs> no, no. No. Timidly, sure. Yeah. yeah. We're also very strong. The first thing That's you're going to grab is your cardigan. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which one? Yeah. I know exactly. There's quite a few. <laughs> you got them all layered up on is the back fr- of your is chair. Is it my Friday cardigan? <laughs> Walk out of the building like the kid from Christmas Story. <laughs> all the my arms down. I saved the cardigans. <laughs> so everything's kind of going wrong. Yeah. Um, but so now this goes wrong. So all of a sudden they're fighting the fires. They've got their good their good trucks with the steam pumps. But all of a sudden the water stops coming out of the hoses. No, <laughs> they drained like Michigan. <laughs> And all those people that were waiting in there are like, oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So they have, um, so they had a fire tower and a pumping station. And they were like, we're going to be really smart. We're going to make this out of stone and it's going to have a slate roof. Yeah. So we're, we've got this. Um, so they thought it was fireproof. But uh, around three in the morning, a burning piece of wood flies over there and it lands on the roof. But what it sets on fire are the wooden wood frames and the oh, doors. No. <laughs> so it burned anyways. Oh, so man. and all the pipes melted. Oh, and so pretty much at this point, they're like, we can't stop this fire. It's just going to keep going. It's going to hit the prairie and it's just going to just it's going to burn up the United States. It's, it's all going to burn down. <laughs> so, yeah, things things are not good. <laughs> Until, so now we're into October 9th, about 11 o'clock. For the first time in like six months, it starts to rain. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So, and then, in a, so in, the, in a few hours, the rain just puts everything out. Wow. Whoa. What great providence. I bet a bunch of people became Christians that day. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in total, it burned for 30 hours. So the area it destroyed was four miles long and a mile wide. Oh, my gosh. More than 17,500 buildings were destroyed. Oh, my God. They estimate about 300 people died. But uh, the scarier number is that... um, Now, do you remember what I told you the population of Chicago was? Yes. Yes. (laughs) It was only 4,000 people when it started. And then it was like like 300,000 people? Something like that. That is correct. Oh, good. Thank you, Julia. So after the fire, 100,000 people were left homeless. So a third of the city (gasps) had nowhere to live. So now you got looters and everybody's panicking. So the city declares martial law. And um, fans, civil war buffs... They send in um, Major General Philip Sheridan of oh, the burning of, of the, the Shenandoah Valley. The best fame. of the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So he's he had a division of about a thousand soldiers, and he was you know keeping things in line. Um, but you know, rescue work and aid uh, came in uh, pretty quickly. So people were sending food, clothing, uh, money, and more lumber because we oh. got oh yeah, sure. you got to replace all we, that wood. We lost a lot of lumber. <laughs> um, so and the other thing that was interesting is so Chicago kind of became a tourist attraction after this because a bunch of looky loos around the country were like I want to see what a burned down city looks like. Yeah, hell yeah. Oh my god. So gosh. then the kids would sell like pieces of rubble and glass as like souvenirs of like the great Chicago fire. Oh my gosh. And so they were making some money. Um, so Chicago was called the Windy City not because of the wind, which is hard to explain when I just talked about the wind. <laughs> Um, but it was because they, they said it was windy because they were like very, um, they would brag about how great their city is. Oh, so they were like, like full hearts. of hot wind. Because oh, I see, like, I see. That's funny. That is funny. So, um, yeah, they were very boastful. So now they're like, well, we are so great that we had the greatest fire. <laughs> We're so great, even our disasters are the best. <laughs> and so this one guy cut, said, no city can equal now the ruins of Chicago. So like, even our burned down stuff is better than your not burned down stuff, because we're the wow. best. <laughs> yeah, no wonder it's the windy city, am I right? <laughs> Jeez. So they, obviously, so obviously Chicago's still there, so they rebuilt. It's but- still there. <laughs> But insurance companies stopped, um, were like, we're not going to insure any wooden buildings anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So then we all know that, you know, Chicago became home to the um, skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. And so here's a fun fact. So what do you think they built on the site of Mrs. O'Leary's house and barn? I wonder if it was another match factory. Um, <laughs> another <laughs> I'm assuming some sort of monument, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps. What's I don't I don't I, I don't I've know. never been to Chicago, so I don't know. Yeah. Is it the Bean? Oh, is it the Love? No, that's the Philadelphia Cloud. Cloud. cloud? Bean? Yeah. What's what's that called? I cloud? don't remember. Cloud Bean. <sighs> I just what's remember the bean, bean called Cloudgate. <laughs> Cloudgate. Oh. No. After all that, no, that's no. not the answer. They built the Chicago Fire Academy. Oh. <laughs> so they can now learn how to fight fires. That's, oh, that's great. Very smart. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Yeah. So then I just had a couple other fun facts. Yes. Please. So when you were talking about Benjamin Franklin and he yes. was like, we should have a volunteer fire, he called it like a fireman's club. So um, in my book, it also gave the tidbit that, so there were all these violent volunteer fire clubs like springing up and they would get really competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. Like they started to think of themselves as like a team. Mm-hmm. So they would like race to get to the fire first and then they would like fist fight the other... <laughs> other volunteer companies so they they wanted to put out the fire so they would get there and they would like guard it and be like we're putting this out not you guys <laughs> seems really counterintuitive <laughs> yeah. so then i had a fun fact about horses so they were horses were first used to pull fire engines in 1832 so they had they were specially trained horses that would run they had to run to the fire and then they had to stay by the fire and sure. not freak out so um, d- the city of Detroit had a, what they called the, a horse college, and they would give out horses report cards when they oh. would, as they, oh. you know, how good a fire horse they were. That's cute. <laughs> um, so then when the horses retired, 
they would like be sold and the people would use them to drive the wagons and stuff. But somehow, sometimes when a fire alarm would go off, they would still think they were a fire host. So they would like run oh. their wagon towards. <laughs> and then Can you, you're just like going <laughs> to the like, shop. Good job, horsey. Like, just want some <laughs> cheese. <laughs> and he just like, like tears off. The... And then you find yourself like, like at a fire. <laughs> and then that volunteer fire company build, beats you up. Yeah. They want the like, best fire first. Fire. I was just going to the market. <laughs> Um, and the only, the other fun fact I had was that I did not, I know that Dalmatians are associated with, oh yeah, but so they were bred to get along with the horses. And so when the fire alarm would go off, the Dalmatians would bark and then they would sort of lead the, um, horses out to the, be hooked up to the engine and then they would help the, at the fire, they would stay near them to help them be calm around the fire. Aww. So that's why the Dalmatians were bred for that. That's so cute. that was I a fun fact. Yeah. Horses I mean, and Dalmatians. I do know that a lot of horses being from a horse family, both my mother and my sister are big horse people and my cousin. Hey, Jillian, she doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, but I do know that horses do need a buddy uh-huh. and it's usually needs to be like a smaller animal. That's why they have goats. A yeah. Lot? Goats. They always, they always oh. have goat buddies or like a smaller pony um, to like kind of someone who is another animal that is not um, another horse because other horses can be like aggressive or they can yeah. kind of be um, competitive kind of thing. But if it's a smaller animal, then they could be like their little buddy. Aww. And so they hang in the barn with them and they're, they're little buddies. And it keeps them calm and it keeps them from like being bored. Because I guess they chat. I don't know. I don't know anything about horses <laughs> <laughs> and goats. But yeah, it's kind yeah, of sweet. Cute. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the a Great Chicago Fire. Great. Oh, cool. Thank and you. if you want to, so I did check out from the library what was what was the Great Chicago Fire, but so I, the other thing there, there's a a, t, a series on Netflix that was it's called the Who Was Show because the other part of the oh, series yeah. is Who Was and it was like Who Was Abraham Lincoln, but the Netflix show is really funny because they dress up like historical characters and do silly things and. I enjoy that show. Um, I'm going to take a picture for the Twitter of the cover of this book because this guy's giant head is too good to not post. So there we go. Okay. (laughs) So like Beth said, um, around this time, there weren't, you know, official firefighter companies. And after there were formations of fire companies in the U.S., there were disagreements over territory. So Mm. like people would send runners. And then if, you know, they got to the fire first, then there might be a fist fight over who actually got to take care of the fire to get the insurance money. Um, During the 19th century and early 20th century, volunteer fire companies served not only as fire protection, but also as political machines. But we can talk about Boss Tweed on another Mm, episode. Yeah. Um, the first known female firefighter was Molly Williams. Um, she was an enslaved woman of a New York City merchant. Um, she was called Volunteer Number 11 of the Oceanus Engine Company Number 11. And her service was noted particularly during the blizzard of 1818. Male firefighters were scarce due to an influenza outbreak that year. Um, but Molly Williams took her place with the men on the drag ropes and she pulled the pumper to the fire through the deep snow. And wow. she was said to be as good a fire laddie as many of the boys. Hmm. That's Molly wonderful. Williams. That's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She was a handsome woman. 
1853, Cincinnati, Ohio featured the first professional fire department made up of 100% full-time employees. And they were also the first in the world to use steam fire engines. Mm. Um, And also in 1906, the first motorized fire department was organized in Springfield, Massachusetts, after Knox Automobile of Springfield produced the first modern fire engine one year earlier. Great. Great. So that brings us up to the early 20th century. Great. And the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Mm. So the Triangle Waste Company factory was located at the corner of Green Street and Washington Place in the Greenwich Village area of New York City. So the factory occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the 10-story Ash Building, just east of Washington Square Park. Owners Max Blank and Isaac Harris had founded the company in 1900, which produced women's blouses known as shirtwaists. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were a functional shirt. They were valued for their ready-to-wear workplace appeal and its simple design, originally modeled on menswear shirts. And as I'm sure... You- that our fashion maven knows. Oh, yes. um, they could be worn jacketless or they were like fashionably tucked into the waistband of your skirt. Yep. Um, and your it was sold. Skirt. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was like the jeans and t-shirt of its time. Yeah, you got yourself a shirt waist and, and a long, long skirt. skirt. Done, you were dressed. Exactly. So that's what, nice. that's what everyone was wearing those days. Mm-hmm. Um, so Harris, one of the owners, designed the layout of the sewing floor himself. Um, he placed the tables in a way that would minimize conversation among the workers in an effort to increase productivity. And the Triangle Waste Company normally employed about 500 workers, mostly young immigrant women, who worked nine hours a day on weekdays plus seven hours on Saturdays, earning for their 52 hours of work between $7 and $12 a week. Um so in today's terminology, we would call that a sweatshop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, and by the way, by uh, 1908, sales at the Triangle Factory hit about $1 million annually. But the workers were still getting Making nothing. less than nothing. So Harris and Blank's factory was competing with more than 11,000 other textile manufacturers oh in God. New York City. And in order to retain their high profit level, they had to produce the cheapest shirt waste in the largest quantity. So they demanded greater efficiency from their production team, um, again, working long hours for little pay. And the owners kept scrupulous inventory of their supplies. A foreman monitored the workforce during the day and inspected the women's bags as they left for the night. And as an additional safeguard against theft, Blank ordered the secondary exit door to be locked. Great. Ready? Great. You, you feel me? Oh, yeah. No, unfortunately, I do. At around 4.40 p.m. on Saturday, March 25th, 1911, as the workday was ending, a fire flared up in a scrap bin under one of the cutter's tables at the northeast corner of the eighth floor. So the first fire alarm was sent at 4.45 by a passerby on Washington Place who saw smoke coming from the eighth floor. Both owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, were there on site that afternoon. A bookkeeper on the eighth floor was able to warn employees on the 10th floor with a telephone, mm. but there was no audible alarm and no way to contact staff on the ninth floor. Oh, no. So while the floor had a number of exits, including two freight elevators, a fire escape, and stairways down to Green Street in Washington Place, flames prevented workers from descending the Green Street stairway, and the door to the Washington Place stairway was locked. As per their usual practice, the owners had locked the doors to the stairwells and exits that day, which in their (laughs) minds would prevent workers from taking unauthorized breaks or reducing theft from the factory floor. The factory foreman who held the stairway door key had already escaped from (gasps) with another route. Dozens of employees escaped the fire by instead going up the Green Street stairway to the roof where a professor at the NYU law school next door used ladders left by painters to form a bridge between the two buildings oh my God. and help them to safety. Other employees were able to jam themselves into the freight elevators while they were still operational. Within three minutes, the Green Street stairway had become unusable in both directions. Employees crowded onto the single exterior fire escape, which city officials had allowed the building to erect instead of a required third staircase from that 
high of a level in the building. And this fire escape was, in reality, a flimsy and poorly anchored iron structure. It soon twisted and collapsed from the heat and overload, spilling about 20 victims nearly 100 feet to their deaths on the concrete Mm -hmm. pavement below. Oh, my God, that's awful. Oh, this is getting so much worse. (laughs) Oh, my God, it gets so much worse. The two elevator operators, Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortelidio... Oh my God, wow. A couple of real, uh, a real, a real New York Italians. A couple of yeah, I got um, you. They saved many lives by traveling three times up to the ninth floor for passengers. But Mortilalo was eventually forced to give up when the rails of his elevator buckled under the heat. Oh no. Some victims pried the elevator doors open and jumped into the empty shaft, <gasps> trying to slide down the cables and to land on top of the car. And the weight and impacts of these bodies warped the elevator car and made it impossible for Zito to make another attempt. Engine Company 72 was first on the scene, but the firefighters were torn between extinguishing the flames and trying to catch the building jumpers in a life net. Once other fire departments reached the scene, it took 18 minutes to bring the fire under control. And even once firefighters arrived, their ladders were only long enough to reach as high as the sixth floor of the building. Which is not helping anybody. Nope, Nope. because the fire is many feet above their heads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, A large crowd of bystanders gathered on the street witnessing 62 people jumping or falling to their deaths from the burning building. Um, 146 people died as a result of the fire. Oh my God. 123 women and 23 men. Most victims died of burns, asphyxiation, or falling or jumping to their deaths. Of the victims whose ages were known, the oldest was 43 and the youngest were just 14. Oh my God. This was the deadliest workplace accident in New York City's history. So the company's owners, Blank and Harris, who survived the fire by fleeing to the building's roof when the fire began. With the keys, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, well. Um, They were indicted on charges of first and second degree manslaughter in mid-April. Their trial began in December 1911. The prosecution charged that the owners knew the exit doors were locked at the time in question. And the investigation found that the locks were intended to be locked during working hours only based on the findings from the fire. But the defense stressed that the prosecution failed to prove that the owners knew that. The jury acquitted the two men Uh. of first and second degree manslaughter. Oh my God. Despite these struggles, the two men ultimately collected a large chunk of insurance money. No. $60,000 more than the fire had cost them in damages. Wow. So they had made a profit from the fire of about $400 per victim. Oh my God. They were, however, found liable of wrongful death during a subsequent civil suit in 1913 in which plaintiffs were awarded compensation of about one week's worth of wages oh to the families God, no. of each deceased. So like 12 victim. bucks? Yeah. Max. Yeah. Max, yeah. One of the witnesses to the event was Frances Perkins, who would later become the first female appointed to a cabinet-level position. She was Secretary of Labor under FDR. Wow. Um, yeah. she, she helped to form the Committee on Public Safety. So this committee was meant to identify specific problems and lobby for new legislation, such as the Bill to Grant Workers Shorter Hours on Work Week, known as the 54-Hour Bill. You know, just a mere 54 hours oh my a week. Gosh. And to ensure that the commission's leaders understood the perilous and sometimes illegal working conditions at New York factories, she forced them to experience the industries for themselves. Once at four in the morning, she dragged them to a cannery that used very (gasps) young children to snip peas and shell beans. And another time, she urged State Senator Robert Wagner to crawl through a small hole onto an ice-covered ladder to test one factory's fire escape. Um, So the committee's representatives in Albany obtained the backing of Tammany Hall's Al Smith, who was the majority leader of the assembly, um, as well as the majority leader 
um, Robert Wagner and this collaboration of machine politicians and reformers known as the do-gooders or goo-goos got results. <laughs> so the New York state legislature created the factory investigating commission to investigate factory conditions in this and other cities and report remedial measures of legislation to prevent hazard or loss of life among employees through fire, unsanitary conditions and occupational diseases. So they held a series of widely publicized investigations around the state, interviewing more than 200 witnesses and taking 3,500 pages of testimony. They've hired field agents to do on-site inspections of factories. And starting with the issue of fire safety, they moved on to broader issues of the risks of injury in the factory environment. So their findings led to 38 new laws regulating labor in New York State and gave them reputation as leading progressive reformers working on behalf of the working class. Mm. Wow. So um, the building where this took place is still standing today. Um, it is known as the Brown Building and is part of and owned by New York University right now. Oh, okay. Interesting. So uh, today, fire and rescue remains a mix of full-time paid, paid on call, and volunteer responders. And in 2015, 70% of firefighters in the U.S. were volunteer. Only 4% of calls were actual fires. Um, 64% were for medical aid, and 8% were false alarms. Yeah. So that's wow. that's our quick and dirty. <laughs> yeah, so quick. Brief history of firefighting yep. and three of the major fires. You'll hear more about You'll uh, the hear Great more. Fire of London <laughs> next week. <laughs> and thank you so much to our special guest coming ah, in yeah. with the Great Chicago Fire. Um, and she also inspired our quiz for yes. today. Oh, so genius. So, I'm an idea man. Really. So yeah. Lauren and I each write five questions for this. And um, so we don't know what the other person wrote. And um, Beth and the other person will answer every question. Mm-hmm. So this is a quiz. Oh, I came up with the idea. I didn't know I would have to know oh, the yeah, answers. Oh, yeah. Uh, this quiz is called We Didn't Start the Fire. This is a quiz on things featured in that Billy Joel song. Question number one. Gossip columnist Walter Winchell worked in various media during his checkered career, including the New York Daily Mirror and the Miami Herald, where he was replaced by a young bowtie enthusiast and now revered journalist who interviewed Tracy Jordan that one time on 30 Rock. Who is this newspaper and radio man? Question two. Which Russian composer and pianist wrote the 1936 symphonic fairy tale, Peter and the Wolf, which is his most frequently performed work and one of the most frequently performed works in all of classical music? Question number three. This medication was intended for pregnant women to combat morning sickness and as an aid to help them sleep. Unfortunately, between 1957 and 1962, children of women who took the drug during pregnancy were born with severe limb deformities. Because of this tragedy, the drug was taken off the market in 1962. Of the 10,000 children born with birth defects, only 5,000 lived beyond childhood. What is the name of this drug? Question four. Which big city newspaper was so sure that incumbent president Harry S. Truman would lose the 1948 presidential election that they printed the now famous and erroneous Dewey Defeats Truman headline seen in an iconic photo where a jubilant Truman holds a copy in the air? Question number five. The sci-fi novel Stranger in a Strange Land was considered a counterculture Bible by many 60s beatniks thanks to a storyline based on a human man raised by Martians who returns to Earth and becomes, well, a stranger in a strange land. The author of this groundbreaking novel is also well-known for his books The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and Starship Troopers. Name him. Question six. 
the Viet Minh fought against and defeated which colonizing country's Far East Expeditionary Corps in the 1954 Battle of Dien Bien Phu? Question number seven. The 1969 Woodstock concert was basically the fire festival of its day, except it was successful and people still look back on it as a watershed moment in music and culture. Years later, organizers tried to get lightning to strike twice by staging a second Woodstock. What year was the second Woodstock, which my cousin Jason definitely attended and had a blast? Question eight. This 1956 novel by Grace Metallius led to a 1957 film adaptation starring Lana Turner and a popular soap opera of the same name, which ran from 1964 to 1969, among other spinoffs. It didn't take place in Indianapolis or Denver, but in a small, gossipy New England town. What's this franchise's title? Question number nine. The 1959 film Ben-Hur is widely considered to be one of the greatest films of all time and won a record 11 Academy Awards, including one for Best Actor for its lead star, whose classic chewing of the scenery really paid off for him in other biblical movies as well. Who is this actor? And finally, question 10. How about those rock and roller cola wars of the 1980s and 1990s? I'll name you three celebrities and you tell me if they shilled for Pepsi or Coke. First, Paula Abdul. Second, Madonna. And third, Michael J. Fox. We'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. You ready? Yeah, I okay. I'm glad we're repeating this because I some of those I did not hear yes. the question in mm-hmm. them. <laughs> okay, here we go. Question number one: Gossip columnist Walter Winchell worked in various media during his checkered career, including the New York Daily Mirror and the Miami Herald, where he was replaced by a young bow tie enthusiast and now revered journalist who interviewed Tracy Jordan that one time on Thirty Rock. Who is this newspaper and radio man? <sighs> I have. I have one guess because of the bow tie. Okay, you can guess. I guess George will. Okay. What do you I guess? I got nothing. It's Larry King. Larry King? Oh. Larry King is so old. He, that, <laughs> yeah, because I was I could only think of George Will with the bow tie, but he's not it that wouldn't have made sense. No. I would consider Larry King a suspenders enthusiast. Oh yeah, you know what? I would say a bow tie and suspenders enthusiast. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's my that's on me. <laughs> he does. Wow. All right. Question two. Which Russian composer and pianist wrote the 1936 symphonic fairy tale Peter and the Wolf, which is his most frequently performed work and one of the most frequently performed works in all of classical music? You got you to guess? Tchaikovsky? 
I'm going to say Prokofiev. It is Prokofiev. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. I only say this because it's in the song. It's in the song. <laughs> um, so Sergei Prokofiev, he was commissioned by Natalia Satz, the director of the Central Children's Theater in Moscow, to write a musical symphony for children. And when Prokofiev visited California in 1938 and met Walt Disney, he performed the piano version of Peter and the Wolf for him. And Walt originally wanted to include that in the 1940 production of Fantasia. Oh. But plans fell through during World War II, and it was eventually made into an animated short. Um, Prokofiev also wrote the ballet version of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, that's, that's his ballet you need to know. Okay, question number three. This medication was intended for pregnant women to combat morning sickness and as an aid to help them sleep. Unfortunately, between 1957 and 1962, children of women who took the drug during pregnancy were born with severe limb deformities. Because of this tragedy, the drug was taken off the market in 1962. Of the 10,000 children born with birth defects, only 5,000 lived beyond childhood. What is the name of this drug? I do know this one. You know, thalidomide. Yeah. Yeah, it was thalidomide. In fact, children I watched a documentary. The <laughs> children of the thalidomide. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is such a cheery thing to sing <laughs> about a terrible tone. thing. Um, I watched a documentary about um, British thalidomide um, babies who are now adults. And actually, they're starting to die off because they have a lot of, obviously, a lot of health problems involved with it. But, I mean, it ranges from, like, they had one arm that was kind of misshapen at birth to like all four of their limbs mm-hmm. are like completely useless and they just have like little fingers and it's horrendous. It's the worst thing anyway. So <laughs> great <laughs> question four: which big city newspaper was so sure that incumbent president Harry S. Truman would lose the 1948 presidential election that they printed the now famous and erroneous Dewey defeats Truman headline seen in an iconic photo where a jubilant Truman holds a copy in the air. What newspaper was it? I was, I guess, the New York Post. I, I was guessing the New York Times. I mean, I have, I don't have any idea. The Chicago Tribune. Oh, oh the Chicago. Oh, the Trib. I should have <laughs> known uh, that with all my extensive research yeah, on Chicago. Your, your knowledge of Chicago. <laughs> Time Magazine called it the greatest photograph ever made of a politician celebrating victory. Um, contrary to popular belief, it was not taken on election night or the day after. Oh. Um, it was a full two days after the election. Uh, the president was on his way back to Washington from his home in Independence, Missouri, when his train stopped in St. Louis. And there, somebody handed Truman a two-day-old copy of the Tribune. Oh. Oh, okay. Your boy Truman. My boy. Your boy. You love him. Okay. Question number five. Uh, the sci-fi novel Stranger in a Strange Land was considered a counterculture Bible by many 60s beatniks, thanks to a storyline based on a human man being raised by Martians who returns to Earth and becomes, well, a stranger in a strange land. The author of this groundbreaking novel is also well-known for his books The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and Starship Troopers. Name him. I just have a last name. Go ahead. You is can do it Heinemann? Oh, you're so close. <sighs> Heinemann? <laughs> Heinemann? <laughs> it's it's Heinlein. Heinlein. It's Robert A. Heinlein. Ugh. Yes. Robert. So in our archives collections, we have um, a an unproduced version of a game version of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress <sighs> yeah. that they oh, like really? to show off and say that we have the only copy of this thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And they talk about it. Andrew Borman talks about it once a week and I can't ever remember who wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know it's Heinlein. Heinlein. Um, really, I, I had never heard of something. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I'm not really like a 50s sci-fi fanatic, so I th- that doesn't mean anything that I've never heard of it, but <laughs> that's so weird. Was it like um like a board game or like a video game? Oh, it was, it was a video, video game. game. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. 
That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay, but I was close. Question yeah. six. The Viet Minh fought against and defeated which colonizing country's Far East Expeditionary Corps in the 1954 Battle of Dien Bien Phu? Colonizing country? Mm-hmm. I don't know, France? I was going to say France. It is France. Yes. Great. So um, this was the decisive battle of the first Indochina War, which was 1946 to 1954 in the northwestern region of Vietnam. After the war ended and they signed the 1954 Geneva Accords, France agreed to withdraw its forces from all its colonies in French Indochina, while stipulating that Vietnam would be temporarily divided at the 17th parallel, with control of the north given to the Viet Minh as the Democratic Republic of Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh, and the south becoming the state of Vietnam, nominally under Emperor Bao Dai, preventing Ho Chi Minh from gaining control of the entire country. And this is what led to the Vietnam War. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very complicated. We'll do an episode of Vietnam War. I know I keep promising that I'll do it. Well, it's there's a lot involved. There's so much to, there's <laughs> so much to cover. So many pronunciations yeah. I'm going to have to type out. That's true. That's true. I mean, you know, our boy Ken Burns did like a seven part series on it. So it's yeah, a you lot. didn't actually get to the actual war until like episode like three. Yeah. You're like this is all just backstory. Yeah. Oh. You need to know this in order to yeah. get into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. Question number seven. The 1969 Woodstock concert was basically the fire festival of its day, except it was successful and people still look back on it as a watershed moment in music and culture. Years later, organizers tried to get lightning to strike twice by staging a second Woodstock. What year was the second Woodstock, which my cousin Jason definitely attended and had a blast? It was 1994. Yeah, I was going to say it was like the 25th anniversary yes, they tried it. Yes, it was 1994. Yeah. So nice. I just, I have a distinct memory of being nine years old and my cousin Jason. <laughs> coming the into, chef. Yeah, the chef, who is a current chef and lives in Hawaii right now with his beautiful wife and his three uh, very attractive children. <laughs> and he, I remember him coming into my, our house and being like, Aunt Nancy, Uncle Dave, I just had the best time in Woodstock. Oh and I remember him talking about like, being covered in mud and like sleeping in a tent and like dancing and like being super drunk. And at nine years old, I distinctly remember thinking that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> well, cause it, he wasn't covered in mud. No, no, it was a lot. <laughs> that, was, that was human excrement. That was human excrement. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. It was a mess. Yeah. People were like, burning things they were yeah like they were like stuff. you yeah you had to have you know a hundred bucks but like they were like buying selling what bottles of water because there was like you couldn't get there were clean no water. resources or anything there were yeah. no resources or anything yeah um you made me feel because like, you said you were nine that was the year i graduated high school in 1994 <laughs> so uh but i yeah you didn't go to woodstock oh no it was i knew it was a nightmare Dude. oh yeah it woodstock would, no too. i would never no no more woodstock yeah <laughs> like i am sort of so uninterested in the concept of woodstock <laughs> that like my favorite singer is Joni mitchell but i refuse to listen i skip the song woodstock every time <laughs> well it's a, it's a terrible she won't song. even watch peanuts <laughs> She just doesn't even acknowledge that bird no. as oh, a I character. Like bird. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, apparently um, Joni Mitchell wrote that song. There. She wasn't even there. And then Crosby, uh, stupid great Dave. I also have a big problem with David Crosby <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, but so, and I don't like Crosby, Stills, and Nash with or without Young. Oh, exactly, yeah. Um, so they sang her song. Mm-hmm. She was married to Steve Crosby. No, Steve Nash. She yes. was married to him for a little bit. But yeah, she wrote the song. Yeah. Then, <laughs> but I, I don't like it. No. I don't approve. No. 
Uh, disapproval from a librarian. Yes. That's the worst yeah. kind it's of outside, disapproval. It was worst outside. Kind. It was loud. Yeah. And there were a lot of people. Mm, All no, three you. of those unacceptable. Also, a traffic jam getting into Woodstock. Yeah. No. no. Time in a Go car. Home. Yes. No. A nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Question eight. This 1956 novel by Grace Metallius led to a 1957 film adaptation starring Lena Turner and a popular soap opera of the same name, which ran from 1964 to 1969, among other spinoffs. It didn't take place in Indianapolis or Denver, but in a small, gossipy New England town. What's this franchise's title? Do you know? I was trying to think of um, soap operas. But I don't, I only know the big ones that are still around now. Yeah, like Young and the Restless or... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, she gave us clues. Is that Peyton Place? It is Peyton Place. Oh my God, nice job. <laughs> All right, I had no idea. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> So the novel describes how three women are forced to come to terms with their identity, both as women and as sexual beings, in a small, conservative, gossipy New England town with recurring themes of hypocrisy, social inequities, and class privilege in a tale that includes incest, abortion, adultery, lust, and murder. It sold 60,000 copies within the first 10 days of its release, and it remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 59 weeks. Uh, The term Peyton Place, um, as an allusion to any small town or group that holds scandalous secrets, entered the American lexicon as a result. Okay. Ah. Sounds like a real Peyton place. This place is a real Peyton place. That sounds amazing. I want to read that book. Yeah. I want to watch that soap opera. Yeah. Well, the, I think the mod, the, um, a more contemporary, uh, phrase like that is that if something was super dramatic, I would call it like a Melrose place. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah. And then what's the, um, what was that? Oh, and then I would also uh, later I would call it Wisteria Lane, oh, which oh, is from Desperate Housewives. Yeah, Housewives. Yeah. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, generations, generations, worth generations. Of, of, you know, gossipy, secret, horrible yeah. things. Right. It's great. It's all about America. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's a rich tapestry. It's a rich tapestry. Um, question number nine, the 1959 film Ben-Hur is widely considered to be one of the greatest films of all time and won a record 11 Academy Awards, including one for best actor for its lead star, whose classic chewing of the scenery really paid off for him in other biblical movies as well. Who is this actor? Is this Charlton Heston? I was, I wrote that down at first, but then I'm second guessing and saying Kirk Douglas. Mm. What, which one do you want to go? I feel like it wasn't. I feel like the guy in Ben-Hur had a wider face. A wider face. And mm, Charlton okay. Heston's kind of more bird-like face. Okay. So like Laurence Olivier? <sighs> I don't know. All right. So are you doing Kirk Douglas? <laughs> I'm going to go with answer? Kirk Douglas. Okay. What do you think, Jewel? I'm going to go Laurence Olivier. Okay. The answer is Charlton Heston. <laughs> Um, Charlton Heston, I think Kirk Douglas was in that movie. Ah. Um, and he is still alive for some reason. Uh, but I will tell you that in high school, um, in ninth grade, my history teacher played us the entirety of Ben-Hur except for the last 10 minutes. And I remember him shutting off the TV and saying, now you have to watch the movie to find out what happens at the end. And now 20 years later, I just found out what happened at the end of Ben-Hur when I looked it up on Wikipedia and I was like, oh, right, Mr. Rinelli never told us what the end of this movie was. <laughs> and so I read the spoilers and I was like, in your face, Mr. Rinelli. Yeah, I didn't you, even have to watch it. You didn't it, right? have to watch it. <laughs> I could have done this ages ago. Last question. Question 10. How about those rock and roller cola wars of the 1980s and 1990s? I'll name you three celebrities and you tell me if they shilled for Pepsi or Coke. 
Ready? Uh huh. Yes. First, Paul Abdul. I said Pepsi. I said Coke. Coke. Yes. Diet Coke. All right. Specifically, Madonna. I said Pepsi. I said Pepsi. Pepsi. Yes. And Michael J. Fox. I said Coke. I also said Coke. This is Pepsi. Oh. Specifically, Diet Pepsi. Diet oh. Pepsi. Oh. Because, you know, he was a real chunker. He was. That <laughs> Michael J. Fox. No, I'm kidding. He's a lovely man. He's a lovely man. Bless him. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. That was excellent. Thank you. That was a great question, yeah. by the way. I really enjoyed that. I feel like I should have done better on that quiz because what inspired me to say this um, theme for the quiz is that when I was in eighth grade, uh, my um, social studies teacher, she made us, uh, she like had this whole unit, like we had to like had the lyrics and we had to like look up all of the historical events that she was referring well, to. Encyclopedias? What yeah, we had to like look at yeah. This was before Yeah, the internet. This was in the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> it was the last century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Yes, and I, I've obviously retained nothing except for thalidomide. Yeah, well, he, he makes a lot of he makes a lot of references without a lot of context. Yeah. it's just a list yeah. of things <laughs> that somehow became an enormous hit. So you know, yeah, it's not your fault. Okay, thank you for making ago. me feel better. About well, that. thank you for coming on yeah, the show. Thank you for joining us. Do you have anything it? to plug? Uh no, I don't. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. You don't have to plug anything. But. Yeah. Do you have another conference coming up? I don't. I actually don't have, I don't even know what I'm doing. All right. Great. I'm going to work and I don't know. Living your best life. It is. It's, you know. Writing book reports with your fifth grader. Yeah. Yes. My older son does not need my help with anything anymore. So it's, Mm -hmm. this is my only opportunity to learn. It's your only opportunity to really get out there and learn new things. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, And uh, if you want to get hold of us and um, if you're a lady who wants to give us some information and wants to come on the show. (laughs) A lady expert. Yeah, lady expert. um, You can email us at missinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at missinfopod. Uh, you can write on our Facebook wall. We are misinformation colon a trivia podcast. And uh, just an FYI, we have a website, triple dub dot misinfopod.com. Uh, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Pretty much. Uh, please tell a friend and rate, review and subscribe. Uh, so thanks so much for listening to our supersize episode, guys. And, and don't build things out of wood. No. Yes. Yeah. My God, no. Or waddle and daub. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll talk more about next week. Okay. We'll get you next time. Bye.